Hi, this is Julian Collins from Julian Creates. Before we get started, I wanted to let you know how you can design and win your very own Bernina Dream Studio. Just check out BerninaSweepstakes.com. When I designed mine, I had to make sure I had a personal island that I can use all the space on for my creations. See it for yourself and get in today to win Bernina's Dream Studio 100K giveaway at BerninaSweepstakes.com. Dream it, design it, win it. Welcome to So-and-So, brought to you by Bernina, made to create. I'm Meg Goodman, and you're about to enjoy a casual conversation with a special member of the Sewist and Quilting community. A conversation about how they got started, what inspires them, what excites them, and their connection to this community. Our guest today is Tula Pink, an illustrator, fabric designer, quilter, author, maker, and an eponymous brand. Tula graduated from Otis College of Art and Design in Los Angeles and worked briefly as an exhibit designer for museums in Southern California, where she grew up. When this vocation became too quiet, she joined the music industry as an art director designing album covers for numerous notable artists. After about five years of that, she left her job and California, landing in the Midwest. Tula's main function in life is fabric design, which she says she lives for. Her signature designs have been adapted to fabrics, woven ribbons, paper products, needlepoint kits, embroidery patterns, and sewing machines, and can be found in independent fabric shops and retailers all over the world. Tula is most recognized in her industries for her dark sense of humor, a flair for hiding animals in the strangest of places, and she says this is artistically, not literally, and her boldly unique use of color and pattern. Tula comes from the more is more school of design where there is never enough space and always room for that one last thing. Today, Tula works with Free Spirit Fabrics to develop multiple fabric collections. She's an ambassador for Bernina, develops collections, and writes books about quilting and sewing. She now lives in a small town outside of Kansas City, Missouri, in a house that used to be a barn and still sort of looks like one. Hi, Tula, and welcome to So-and-So. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's great. We've been looking forward to this and have a lot to talk about today. And I want to jump right in that you come from a family with no quilting history and you're self-taught. Um, why did you choose sewing and how did you teach yourself? Um, well, I'd like to point out that this is pre-YouTube when I started sewing. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. good point. <laughs> yeah. So it it's a lot, it's a lot more difficult. It was a lot more difficult to self self-teach back then. I feel like now it's so much easier. I mean, mm-hmm. I had a friend who taught themselves how to swim by watching videos on YouTube recently. So I feel like you can learn a lot more, a lot easier these days. But I mean, you know. I feel like it was a great stroke of luck that I found quilting. Um, I, you know, I don't come from a family, like you said, that quilts. So I didn't have that in my family. I didn't have sort of like generational knowledge to pull from. But uh, I was crafty always as a kid. Um, My mom said I was born drawing. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, art, (laughs) crafts, making things, that was a huge part of my life always. And my parents, I was really lucky that my parents were super encouraging of that. 
And when I was 12, my grandma gave me a sewing machine for Christmas, just like a little, you know, big box store, cheap sewing machine for Christmas, just not because I had any interest in sewing, but because she wanted to see what I would do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just loved anything, any tool that was for making and a sewing machine was a tool I didn't have. So, uh, it, it was kind of a stroke of luck and we went looking for fabric and the first fabric shop, like I didn't know there were types of fabric or types of fabric stores. And the first one we came across just happened to be a quilt shop. And I was struck immediately. That was it right there. That was it. I <laughs> saw quilts and and I saw, it was interesting because back then there, there wasn't, I mean, we're talking like, you know, early 1990s, which is a shockingly long time ago when you really think about mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't like, this like modern wave of quilting and fabric hadn't really hit yet in the way it has now. And so I was looking at these very, very traditional sort of Civil War reproductions, you know, 30s feed sack quilts. And I don't know, I, I saw more in it. Like I saw a place for me in that, even though it didn't seem obvious at the time. Mm-hmm. And um And I just, I wanted to do it. It's all I wanted to do. It was, it's weird that I, you know, I never really had an interest in making clothes or all the other things that, that most younger people are brought to sewing to do. I loved quilts immediately. And that has never changed. Now you were talking about seeing some of the, the traditional quilt squares and, and designs, from that, what drew you to fabric design? Well, I'm an illustrator by nature. So that's probably like my core function, talent, whatever. Um, I draw pictures. Uh, that's what I do all the time. It's what I've always done. And, you know, drawing for fabric is a really, really different proposition. And and I think what I what I what brought me to fabric design specifically was that I couldn't find the fabrics I wanted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a, as a, an artist and a maker and a designer sort of by nature, when you can't find something you want, you make it yourself. So um, that's what I did. That's literally how I started designing fabric. It was me searching for the fabric I wanted, but couldn't find. So I was just going to make it myself. And um, my original plan, and this is also pre-digital printing. So, and I'm really glad that I came up like before all this technology, because I probably would have just, you know, digitally printed the fabric myself and never tried to embark on this as a career because all Mm -hmm. I was really trying to do was serve my own craft. I wasn't, you know, I had a job. I worked in the music industry. I was successful. I didn't need, I wasn't looking for a career. I had one. So, um, and one that I had studied for and worked for and, you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so I was really just looking to serve my own craft and, and had I had the tools to just do that, I might have only ever done that and never tried to make it a career. But at the time I needed someone to produce this fabric for me so I could use it. Mm -hmm. So going to a manufacturer and, you know, showing them my portfolio and trying to get them to print my fabric was really self-serving. It wasn't, it wasn't in the pursuit of a career. 
it was just to get me the fabric in my hand so that I can make my quilts out of it. Sure. Um, and, you know, and once I was in it, it was like all of my previous training sort of came into play. Uh, you know, as an exhibit designer in museums, I knew how to put a booth together and create a display and show off the pro- the artwork and the product. And as a, you know, working in the record industry, I knew about marketing, I knew about launching, I knew about, you know, and it was like, oh, gosh, is, have I been working my entire life to serve this and sure. not realized it, you know, and that's kind of what ended up happening. And that awareness got you to where you are now. Yeah, for sure. Tula is somebody who was born drawing, and so so you've got this in your your DNA. You've said that you live for fabric design. Do you talk about this a little bit? And do you see designs in around you in everyday life? Um, you know, it's funny. I feel like um, the question that most people ask is, "Where do you get your inspiration?" Which is not what you're asking, but that's a question I get asked a lot, which I think is like a weird, unanswerable question. Um, but mm-hmm. um, I don't, I don't look around me and see things that I want to put in fabric. I, I am like, I live most of my life in my head. I spend a lot of time by myself mm-hmm. and, and I'm a pretty reclusive person and I enjoy my time to myself and and I spend a lot of time making things up and that's kind of what comes out of my fabric. So I would say my my influence is less external and more internal. I mean, I'm trying to draw the world I wish I lived in instead of settling for the one I see. Um interesting. Mm-hmm. It's 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 really I mean, what I draw in my fabric is sort of it's a fantasy. It's aspirational for me. It's 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 what I wish I saw when I opened my eyes and looked around. Now, I, I want to take that a step farther. Um, we talked in the intro about your dark sense of humor and that you hide animals. Yeah. Uh, tell us more about that. Well, when I, de- when I started designing that very first fabric collection, uh, it was called Full Moon Forest. So it was the first collection I launched um, as a fabric designer and the first collection I designed. And, um, and, and I started out drawing what I thought fabric was supposed to be. Like I looked around and I was like, okay, here's collections that exist. They have a paisley, a polka dot, a stripe, a focal print, a medium set, you know, like all the, all the functional pieces that a fabric does, like a fabric collection required in order to complete a quilt. And so I did that. I did that. I did a paisley, I did a stripe. And then I was like, you know, I'm bored already, <laughs> you know, cause it's like, <laughs> sure. It's like, this is just, I'm just doing what I've seen and that's, that's not my way. So, um, so I was looking at the Paisley and I was like, oh, if I take this line and move it here and take this line and move it here, I can make this Paisley into an owl, right? Like I can make Mm -hmm. it look like an owl, but made of Paisleys and I can take the stripe and make it a forest of vertical birch trees. And I can take, you know, the polka dot and make it raindrop. So I can like, tell a story through all these little prints, but, and they are those prints. They are the things because quilts require certain things. They require loud moments and quiet moments and large scale focal pieces and support pieces. Like a collection is very strategic. A fabric collection is, it's not just whimsy. Like you, there's certain things a quilt requires, you know? And, um, 
And so I started doing that when I turned that first collection in with all these hidden animals in, you know, I took a vine and made it into a squirrel and, you know, and so it's like the animals were there, but they weren't always super obvious. Sometimes they were, sometimes they weren't. Sometimes you had to really look for them. It was sort of like a search and seek kind of game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that made it interesting to me. Like, I love the idea that at first glance, it's one thing, but the closer and closer and closer you get, you see different things at different distances. and. And, and that was interesting to me. I was no longer bored. And when I turned that first collection in and signed my first fabric contract, they said, you know, well, you know that you'll have to do this forever. Like, this is your thing. And I was like, what drawing animals in traditional (laughs) patterns? Yeah, I can do that forever. Like that's Mm -hmm. not a hardship. Um, and so, so that just became my thing. And And it's a little bit surrealist. It's a little bit strange. But at first glance, it's actually pretty comfortable, you know, because because I'm working with really traditional patterns. Usually Uh, my favorite fabric designer is William Morris. And and I've studied that's how I taught myself how to design fabric by studying his sketches and his partial design sketches where you can see the real structure of everything. Mm -hmm. And that's how I taught myself how to make repeats and all of that. So I really love this, like everything I do is really rooted and based in this very like traditional antique textile approach. Um, And then, and then I just make it weird because I think that's more interesting. Well, let's, let's talk about your style a little bit more. It has been described as modernational, which is (laughs) part, part modern, part traditional. Yeah. Uh, And, and I know, I know you get a kick out of this. So, so describe this for us. Well, it's really funny because, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious obvious that I'm not a modern designer. Um, I, you know, I think we've, as an industry, been trying to define that term for some time, and um, I'm not real interested in the definition of that term. But I consider myself an incredibly traditional designer, um, and but and I've always said that if you if you take a photo of my quilts in black and white. They're very, very deeply traditional. Um, mm. It's the color that makes it not feel traditional. Um, like the collection I just launched actually this last week um, is all neutral foundations with neon prints, neon ink. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, but if you take that neon out of it and you take the the kind of wacky color out of it, I mean, it, it's it's really not terribly modern at all. Um, and my quilts are very much traditional. Like I love like antique traditional quilts and that's what I make. I just make them in rainbow with neon colors and crazy colors. But I consider myself a very traditional designer, but I'm sort of categorized in this sort of transitional. It's clearly not traditional because of the color, but that's really the only thing that takes it there. So I, I get the the sense that when people interact with your fabrics, they really can experience a myriad of different things as they spend time with them. A hundred percent. I mean, and that's that's what I'm that's what I want. You know, um, I think people have. I mean, I believe that your intention, like the passion I put into a thing, can be felt by people. Mm-hmm. Um, not in like a super mystical way. I just think, I think that when people interact my, with my fabric, I feel like they feel how much I love it. 
<laughs> you know, like it, like it shows like the care and the attention shows or on some level, people are picking that up. And so people have a real emotional connection to my fabric. So there's much more to it than just the, the piece of fabric. I think so. Tula, you are known internationally and you've built a large community around your brand and your creations. Um, how did they influence what you do? Um, like the the community at large has mm-hmm. a huge amount of impact in what I do because I really see my job as serving them. Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting sort of position to be at, you know, a, trained as an artist and a designer. You're trained to sort of, there's this romantic idea about following your own whims. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't really believe in that. Um, you know, like I, it, I'm not making a painting that, that sits framed on a wall exactly the way I intended it to be. I'm creating a fabric that other people are going to use to execute their creative vision. Mm-hmm. So I'm not in control of the final product. I'm essentially collaborating with my community so that they can reach their creative potential. So I'm not the final piece. I'm really just the paint that they're using mm-hmm. themselves. I'm I'm a tool for them to express their visions. So it's it's a really different sort of approach. And so if I'm collaborating with them in the greater sense of collaboration, uh, I really work for them. And so I listen to them and what they want. What's it like for you when somebody shares their creation or their vision with you with some of the the paint uh, that you've supplied them? It's really, it's amazing. It's so fascinating because I work on these fabric collections for months and months and months and months, up to 18 months it takes to produce a fabric collection and get it into people's hands. And and I, I always think, and I've been doing this for, you know, 15, 16 years now, and I always think I've thought of every possible way that it will be used. Mm-hmm. And I never have. And so somebody will show me something they've made. And so often I go home and like really think about how they used it in a way I hadn't thought of and try to figure out, like, sometimes I'm so... I'm so into what they've made that I go home and I make it myself mm. using their combinations. So like there's a lot of influence back and forth. I love to see the way people use it. Um, the combinations that people put together, the way they, especially um, when they intermix fabric collections of mine. Um, it's always so interesting to see what they pull from their stash of previous collections and and True Colors, which is my sort of like ongoing collection that's always available, that's a support to my main collections. And mm-hmm. seeing the way people pull from that and what they use and what they gravitate towards is always so interesting because it's often very different than the way I saw it. So um, it's enlightening is, I think, often what I feel when I see something because I'm like, okay, I designed this. I've seen it in every possible what I thought configuration. And you've now discovered something in my own work that I didn't see. Um, and that's always, it's just the coolest, like that's, that's the moment that I love the most. Now, now you've mentioned that you're not opposed to the commercialization of art and you believe in its democratization. Yeah. Um, tell us where these beliefs started and how do they affect what you do? 
Well, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, like I, my, my training is as a designer. So my degrees are in graphic design and illustration and not in fine art. Um, and I, and I find that fine art is like, there's a lot of gatekeeping and, you know, it's a hard thing to break into. It's, it's one of those things where like, you know, only one person can have that one Picasso, like that's it. Mm-hmm. Only one person can have it. Only one person can hang it and enjoy it and, or they can donate it to a museum where you can go visit it. But I love the idea of creating artwork that many, many people can have, that many, many people can enjoy and have different relationships with it and use it differently. And they get to put their stamp on it. I think there's something really magical about that. and. um I'm really, really into that whole, like, that it's not just for one person, right? So it's like, it's not just for a certain group of people. It's not just for one person. It's for a lot of people to have a lot of different relationships with the same piece of artwork. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something really magical about that. You know, I I get the sense, Tula, in, in our conversations that your creations are not so much about the thing that you create but the ensuing effect that it has on people who experience it. Totally. Yeah. A hundred percent. It's only about the interaction that people have with it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Because without that, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, if I just, if I created things that, that only I was into, then that's nothing, you know, that's just self-satisfactory. There's nothing in that for me. Um, it's it's all about the interaction I have with other people and the interaction they have with the work. Um, that's a that's all of it, really. So I, I want to kind of change gears here a little bit and talk about. We talked earlier about you know what influences you, what inspires you, and um, you are a history buff. And you love to read all you can about famous women in history, such as Marie Antoinette, Queen Elizabeth, etc. And these women have inspired some of your most well-known fabric lines, which I think is fascinating. So talk to us about this inspiration and give us an example of um, what was inspired by this. Yeah, I mean, I would say history buff is 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 a generous statement. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. But uh, uh, I mean, I do, I, I'm really fascinated by historically stories that women, stories about women that have endured because there wasn't a lot of place in history for women, especially ones that leave a lasting impression. So you know, I mean, I think one of my first fabric collections that really explored that was about Elizabeth the first, uh, Queen Elizabeth the first, and mm-hmm. and I had just come back from England, and and I was, you know, it, it's interesting. You you grow up growing up in America, where history is so new. You know, we're a really young country, and so you know, we don't walk down the street and see things that were built. 1500 years ago, you know, Mm -hmm. at best, maybe 250 years ago, like 
if you're like on the East Coast, maybe, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Um, but I grew up in California where like literally nothing was older than 22. And if it was, it had already been plastered over or had surgery of some kind. So, (laughs) um, so, you know, you know, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, with historical documents being mostly written by, by men, Mm -hmm. for a woman to endure all these revisions of history throughout years and still be known today. I mean, I say Queen Elizabeth I, and everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about. They might even picture her in some way, which is crazy Mm -hmm. because she ruled in the 15 and 1600s. So like, that's insane that we're still, that we still know who this is as in like the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, What, how, how much she must have had to accomplish in order to endure this long. Right. True. And, and I just think that's really interesting. I think, I think the idea of like who we remember and why we remember them is really interesting. Some for scandal, some for greatness, some for, you know, a myriad of different reasons, but there are people that we remember and their stories are still fascinating to us today. Mm -hmm. I mean, they still make movies about, about some of these women today, which I think is really, really interesting movies that people watch, Mm -hmm. that people want to watch, you know, it's like, we're still, we're still sort of trying to understand these women hundreds of years later. And it's like, huh, that's interesting to me. So what would your biography say about you? What, what would people remember you for? Um, I don't, (laughs) my first instinct is to say, I don't know that people remember me at all because I very rarely leave my house. So I don't know that anyone knows me, but, um, you are known. (laughs) You are. (laughs) It's it's like the only person that's probably like capable of writing anything about me or my life would probably be my brother. He's probably the only person who actually knows me, Mm -hmm. um, because he works with me and, you know, he's helped me build this and everything. So he's been here for it. But, you know, I always feel like, Everything important about me is actually in the fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like anything I feel or think or, you know, a lot of like my personality traits, I think, I think if you're looking at it closely enough, if you were so inclined to do so, would all be there, would all be present, you know. Um, I hope that people say that I w- was imaginative, I suppose. Mm-hmm. That would be the defining quality. <laughs> so so you're writing your autobiography every time you create. I mean, I look at it that way. Sure. Um, you know, and you know, obviously there's a lot of context left out that people wouldn't know unless they know me, but you know, I feel like there is there there is an autobiographical nature to what I do for sure. Now you mentioned your brother. Yes. Um and T- Tula Pink is a family business. Um he works with you. Yes. Um take us inside the day to day. Uh tell us who does what, uh what it's like for you to run this business. Yeah. Um give, give us kind of a, an inside peek at this. Well, I mean it's it's interesting, you know. I mean this industry specifically is interesting in that way because I think you'll find that um in an an insane number of the businesses in this industry are family businesses at different levels. Obviously Bernina is a family business, you know, mm-hmm. um, free spirit is owned by Jaftex, which is a father and his two sons, you know, it's like, there's a lot of, um, a lot of family businesses. Like I would say like 
90% of the businesses in this industry are family businesses, which I think is super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know of any other industry that's like sort of that deeply rooted in family. Um, but yeah, I mean, I started out doing this on my own and, you know, my brother Cameron, he's 10 years, 10 years younger, nine or 10 years younger than me, depends on the time of year. Um, and he is basically my right hand. So he handles all of sort of the digital world of Tulip Pink. So he is the online arm of Tulip Pink. And, um, you know, he manages the social media and the websites and all of that stuff so that I can do all the physical work, Mm -hmm. uh, the designing, the making, all of that. And, um, And then my mom, who doesn't actually work with me, but she runs um, an online store called, uh, or she owns an online store called I Heart Tula Pink, and she just sells my products. So while we don't work together, her business is based off my business. So um, it's interesting. It's just, uh, it's a, it's an interesting family dynamic. And we did really have to learn how to work together professionally. Mm -hmm. You know, there's certain things that like, a, a sister would say to a brother that a coworker can't say to another coworker. <laughs> so there was a learning curve. Like the first couple of years, I think we we probably bickered a lot more, like brother and sister do, and mm-hmm. and all of that. And you know, we've been working together for I think like eleven years now, eleven or twelve years now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think if you would have talked to either of us as like teenagers that we would have anticipated this being our life both of us working in the quilting industry as as co-workers and partners in a business living in the Midwest. When we were teenagers in Southern California, I don't think if you would have told us that, we would, probably would have laughed and said, that's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but, you know, like all of it would have been seemed ridiculous living in the Midwest, working in quilting, sure. being, you know, running a business together, like all of that would have seemed insane. But um, yeah, it's been really cool because through learning how to be respectful co-workers, um, we have, I think our relationship overall has just become incredibly solid. Mm-hmm. Um, we trust each other. And I think that's the biggest thing. Trust and respect is sort of the foundation of everything we do. And even though we respect each other and trust each other as brother and sister, this is like a whole different level. Mm-hmm. And this added level has really brought our family a lot closer together, which it started out making us not as close, but we've, we've become closer. (laughs) You worked through it. We worked through it. And I think, I think it's made us better overall. So it's, it's a really interesting dynamic, you know, it's like, because Cameron knows every single thing about my business Mm -hmm. and my business is like the most crucial part of my life. So to have somebody that involved, you have to have a lot of trust and a lot of respect and, Mm -hmm. you know, and we just start from that place with everything. And I think it's, it's been really cool because our whole family is like supportive. I mean, my whole family basically quilts now, which is great. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, everybody's kind of always excited, which is really cool. And, and you mentioned not only knowing your business, but that your brother knows you best. Yes, as I well. would say he probably knows me better than anybody. Now, in in talking about family businesses, you mentioned Bernina, mm-hmm. uh, and you are an ambassador for Bernina. Yeah. Well, would you tell our listeners what what that means? What what you do? 
It basically just means that I really love Bernina. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it's really interesting. So like I had mentioned earlier, my grandma gave me like a cheap, you know, probably like an $80 sewing machine when I was 12. And I sewed on that for years, um, mm-hmm. like 10, 15 years. And when I got to a point where I didn't really know that there was a difference in sewing machines at that point, you know, when you're starting, you're just figuring out, you don't know anything. And And when I decided it was time to like buy myself a good sewing machine, like this is, this is where I was at in my, in my life. I wanted to have like a really good sewing machine. It was my joy. It's the thing that took me, like settled me down after a long day of work um, when I was working in the music industry and all of that. And, um, and so I started asking all of the, the like best sewists that I knew, quilters, just people who sewed what they used Mm -hmm. and it was almost completely unanimously Bernina. So I was like, okay, well then that's what I have to get. Right. Because that's what everybody uses. And so I bought my first Bernina and um, it was a lot more expensive than my first machine. And it didn't take me more than about a half an hour to figure out why it was like a wildly different experience, like wildly different. Um, And I was just smitten. So I actually, I heard that they had an ambassadorship program where they worked with people who sewed. And and I thought, I want to learn everything about sewing machines and how to use them. Like, I didn't know anything really. Like I was sewing with very little practical knowledge. I was just working things out as I went. Like, I didn't know there were like different types of needles. I mean, I did, but I didn't think it mattered. And so you know, so I was like, I'm a, I, I wanted to become a, an ambassador because I knew there was a lot of education that came along with that. Um, so as an ambassador for Bernina, um, you learn a lot about the sewing machines and basically anything you want to know, they'll teach you. And so that was my initial and I've been an ambassador with them for, gosh, well over a decade well over a decade at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And and, you know, when they come out with a new product, I can go up to the Bernina uh, headquarters um, outside of Chicago and I can try it out. I can learn it. You know, it puts me in connection with my local dealerships. I can try things with them. I can, if I have questions, I can get them answered. Um, But really the reason I'm still a Bernina ambassador is just because of my extreme love of Bernina. I mean, I am a Bernina girl to the core. Mm -hmm. I have uh, 14 Berninas now. Yeah. 13 or 14. Uh, that was the next question. How many do you um, <laughs> I sure. keep like two of two or three of them out all the time that I sew on. But uh-huh. um, I've also des- designed uh, three machines for Bernina. So I obviously I have those and then I have backups of those mm-hmm. just in case I need them for some some reason. I'm not sure. But <laughs> so, yeah, so I have uh, a lot of Berninas for sure. So you were talking about designing a, a machine, and I want to talk about a, an interesting fact here. Um, earlier, in, in an earlier episode, I interviewed Kay Fassett, uh, who has just uh, designed a machine for Bernina, and he credited you with being the spark that led to his relationship with Bernina. So would you tell us about how you two met and how he inspires you? Uh, yeah, um, that is incredibly flattering. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I am very good friends with Kafe and Brandon and, um, I think that's very nice that he said that. 
and I credit him with actually bringing me to fabric design. So, um, I mean, really, Kafe before I knew him, sort of changed the course of my life. Um, I so the first the first time I ever saw his work in a store, I was just in my local fabric shop. Um, it was a beautiful little store in Carpinteria, California. And it was a really like forward thinking store. And so they had, I went there a lot and they brought in things that I had never seen anywhere else. And so I loved going there because it was just a treasure trove of things I'd never seen before. They carried a lot of Japanese fabrics and, and just like more wild stuff. Um, It was a very unconventional fabric store. I believe it's some version of it is still there. Roxy's is maybe what it is now. Um, but, uh, I walked in and they had a huge display of a new fabric designer called Kay Fawcett right in the middle of the store. And I just, it was the first time I ever looked at fabric and thought this came from the mind of a single person. Like this isn't a reproduction. Mm. This isn't something old made new. This isn't, this isn't like a group of people designing a collection or whatever, which is mostly what I had seen. This was so clearly from the artistic mind of a single vision. Right. And it was the first time I ever Mm -hmm. actually thought about the fact that a person designs fabric because the industry was like, I want to say like Mm. 90% reproductions. And if it wasn't a reproduction, it was usually novelty of some kind, a baby line with teddy bears. You know, if it was if it was clearly a new illustration, it was usually a novelty illustration of some kind. Um, And this wasn't that this was Mm -hmm. florals and leaves and foliage and and geometric patterns that were just wild. The colors were insane. It was like it was like everything was on fire in the best way. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I was like, wait, somebody's designing this, like a person did this. This is not designed by committee. Um, this is a unique vision. And that was, that was sort of my first sort of like light bulb moment that somebody is out there designing fabric for a living and I could do that too. And, um, so yeah, I mean, I feel like Cave is a total anomaly in every way. Um, there's no one else like him. I don't believe there will ever be anyone else like him. Um, he's just so deeply committed to his vision. And I think that's so fascinating. You know, he's been doing this for so long and he's never, never gotten off, off course. You know, he's just so uniquely him. And I, I think that's the mark of a great designer. How did you two meet? Um, we actually met when I started designing for Free Spirit. So when I originally designed, de- uh, started designing fabric, I pitched my line to Free Spirit because they had um, Kafe and Amy Butler at the time who were basically like my fabric design heroes. And and they, those two really changed the game in a lot of ways. And um, and I and I pitched to Moda Fabrics. And I ended up going with Moda because I was a little bit too afraid. Well, they're a great company, but also because uh, they didn't have anything like me 
And so I thought, oh, I'll be a little bit more individual on this side. And I was honestly, to be like perfectly honest, I was a little afraid to stand shoulder to shoulder with Kafe and Amy and call myself an equal. I was very intimidated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at a certain point, I realized that Free Spirit was really the better place for me to be just for my work. Mm-hmm. Um, my work would fit in better with their customer. And so I switched over um, and went to Free Spirit. And that's when I really got to know Kafe. And because now we were colleagues. Mm-hmm. And so we would see each other at markets and stuff and got to talking and just, I mean, the rest is kind of history. Tula, what's next for you? What's your dream? (sighs) My dream, honestly, is just to be able to do this as long as possible. Um, Okay. uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, we've, we've had so many questions about, will you ever go into wallpaper and rugs and all these other things? And it's like, I'm just, I'm just not passionate about those things. Um, I I keep like a running list of all of the quilts I'm going to make when I retire and I don't have to sell the patterns for (laughs) them Uh because you really make very differently when you have to, when other people have to be able to make it also, you know, you can't Mm -hmm. be quite as whimsical about it. You can't have 300 fabrics. Well, you can, but it'll, you know, make people pretty upset. But um you know, it's, I don't know. I mean, I try not to think too far ahead. I try to just like serve the needs of myself and my customer and quilters and the business in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I try not to get too bogged down with thinking past or future, try to stay in the present as much as possible. And I think that's part of what's made me successful. So, so we've talked about a lot of things today. Mm-hmm. Um, and my last question to you is, is there a question that I didn't ask you that you wish I had? Um, no. I mean, preferably I'd like to not be asked any questions at all, but. Uh, <laughs> um, because you, you're in your head and you're an introvert. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I am. I am. I am deeply introverted. Uh Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't think people really totally realize that about me though. Um mm-hmm. because I I talk pretty easily and that's usually not the sign of an introvert, but I have a good game face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, th- th- there's th- there's a word and I don't know what it is for someone who is really an introvert but can be an extrovert as needed. I can do it as needed and for short durations. Uh-huh. I have about a a 90 minute limit before I need to retreat and then I can come back. (laughs) Well, you've been wonderful with us today and very forthcoming. And and I just want to tell you, it's been a terrific conversation. And um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Tula, if any of our listeners would like to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do so? Um, Definitely through social media, Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, probably the best way. Perfect. Okay, thank you again. All right, thank you. Well, there you have it. Another story about someone just like you, someone for whom sewing and quilting is so much more than a hobby. It's a way of life. It's a connection to something bigger. If you know someone you think has an outstanding story, a story that should be shared on this podcast, please drop me a note to meg at soandsopodcast.com or just complete the form on our website. Be sure to subscribe to, review, and rate this podcast on your favorite platform. 
and visit our website, soandsopodcast.com, for more information about today's and all of our guests. That's S-E-W-A-N-D-S-O podcast.com. And finally, I want to thank Bernina for making this program possible. I'm Meg Goodman, and I look forward to you joining us next time on So and So.